Well, this title again is called Consider Jesus, the Many Facets of Jesus. And I think about this study kind of like I think about a diamond. You know, a diamond has facets and you can turn it around and look at the different facets and the light hits the diamond in different ways. You can just see the beauty of a diamond from many different angles. And what we're doing in this study... Uh, considering Jesus as we are, we are, we're lifting Jesus up and we're trying to just look at his person, his work, his ministry from different perspectives, different angles, if you will, so we can see his greatness in a fuller way. And I've given you three things here as to why we need to consistently consider Christ, think about Christ, study Christ, observe Christ, fix our eyes upon Christ. And I've shared these every week, and let me just go through them very quickly. We need to consistently consider Jesus so we can marvel at him as we consider his greatness. Our hearts well up uh, in, in worship for who he is and what he's done. We need to consistently consider Jesus so we can be transformed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we gaze upon, as we, as we gaze deeply into the person work of Christ, we are transformed into that same image. And so as we As we focus on Jesus, we are changed into Christ's likeness. And also, we need to consistently consider Jesus so we can learn from his example. The Bible speaks of fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and and following his example, pattering our lives after his example. And so we've looked at different aspects of Jesus. I think the first week we talked about Jesus being the lion and the lamb, and we talked about Jesus being God and man. And last, what did we talk about last week? Jesus, um, what are the two aspects? Anybody remember? Uh, last week? Who was here last week? What's that? Yeah, yeah, gen- I'm saying, great. Gentleness and severity. We talked about aspects of Jesus where he is gentle uh, to, to some and severe to others. And why that was the case. And so we t- studied the gentleness and the severity of Christ. Well, tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus being a balanced proclaimer to crowds, while, while exemplifying a desire to invest in a small group of men. He was a proclaimer and a mentor. And I believe that's an important balance to strike because in the body of Christ, you can go to a Christian bookstore or go online and find some articles, and you'll find all sorts of articles about what the church should be about, what the church should be like. And, and there's this segment of the body of Christ that says, you know what, uh, we need to gather as many people as we can. We need to attract them, attract them, attract them, get a big group, uh, provide environments that will be appealing to them so they'll come back. And when, when we get them here, we need to proclaim uh, to, the, to the large group and focus on the large group. And that's how we're going to grow the kingdom on that, that massive gathering of people. You have others in the body of Christ that... Uh, that say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not into organized religion. And usually what they mean by that is I don't like leadership, but that's an entirely different sermon. But, but I, don't like, I, don't like, I don't like organized religion. And what they mean is I don't really want to really go to church and hear a pastor preach and have you know, some structure and all that. I, I just kind of want to do my own thing. And, and, uh, and, and you know, hey, it's just, it's just about, hey, just hanging out, living life together. We need to live life together and we can meet in our homes and, and be organic and and, 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 and those folks have no use for the corporate gathering of the body of Christ. They're all about, let's stay in small, organic uh, groups and, and do our thing uh, in an in a unorganized way. And so you have both of those 
elements in the body of Christ. And so the question becomes, well, what's, what's right? Which one's right? Which one should be the focus of, of a church? What should be the focus of Christians? And I say, well, let's look at Jesus. Jesus gives us a very clear picture of what our focus ought to be because he was balanced, perfectly balanced. God on earth, perfectly balanced. So if we'll just follow his example, I believe that we'll maintain that balance and be effective in building his kingdom. So let's talk about Jesus being proclaimer and mentor. Proclaimer and mentor. Number one, here's what we need to understand about Jesus Jesus preached to crowds. Jesus preached to crowds. Even a cursory reading of the gospel will help you to see that Jesus preached to crowds. Let me give you some examples. First of all, he taught in synagogues. Look over in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16. The Bible says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." So Jesus is reading a prophetic passage from Isaiah, saying Isaiah said that that one was going to come that fulfilled these characteristics. Then look what happens in the next verse. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, hey, you know that verse in Isaiah written hundreds of years ago talking about one who would come anointed by the Spirit that would give sight to the blind and set the captives free. It's happening because I'm here. These are, this is a bold statement by Christ. And all, who spoke, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So he's in the synagogue talking to this crowd in the synagogue. And they said, this is not Joseph's son. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In other words, people in the synagogue there said, we, we know Jesus. He's the son of Mary and Joseph, and he grew up here. And there's nothing, nothing special about Jesus. He's just a, a good old boy from our hometown. And they did not give him the, the respect that he was due. But look what he says in verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And this, this isn't part of my message. I just want to keep reading because this is really good stuff. All right. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So you know what Jesus does? He, he mentions an Old Testament story where the heroine of faith is a Gentile. He's speaking to a Jewish audience and he said, hey, listen... The, the, one of the heroes in the story about Elijah was a woman from Zarephath. Look what he does in verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So he mentions God's grace for a Syrian, a Gentile. Speaking of God's activity among the Gentiles to a Jewish audience. And they don't like this. Look what happens next. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
And they rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. How mad were they? They wanted to throw him over the cliff and kill him. You know why? Because he was highlighting God's grace among the Gentiles. They didn't like that. Look in verse 21. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was doing what? Teaching them on the Sabbath. So he teaches in the synagogue in, uh, in, in Nazareth. They, they want to kill him, but he, it's not time. And so he, he, he makes his way through their midst. He doesn't allow them to kill him. And then he goes to Capernaum, and he sets up his ministry base of operations there, and he goes back to the synagogue, and what does he do? He teaches some more, right? This is Jesus' pattern. He was teaching in synagogues. And so, how did the people receive his teaching in synagogues? Well, not good in, in Nazareth, but look at Capernaum. It says, verse 32, They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed what? Authority. And then, fast forward to verse 37, after he casts out a demon uh, from a man. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So Jesus, there's no questioning it, Jesus went to synagogues, which was the primary place of worship when Jews weren't at the temple, Jews that didn't live in Jerusalem, they would set up synagogues to worship, and in those synagogues, Jesus Christ would teach the Bible, teach truth, hard truth sometimes, but he taught in synagogues to crowds. Secondly, not only did he teach in synagogues, he taught in the countryside. He taught in the countryside. Turn to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the, what's the word there? The crowd, everyone say crowd. The crowd that remained on the door of the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Y'all, I'm trying so, you know, you sent me to Israel, and I'm trying so hard not to say, I've been there, I've been there, I've been there. But all these places I've reading about, Nazareth, Capernaum, Tiberias, what, Frank? We've been there, right? We've been there. All right, okay. So I feel better having said that because it was awesome. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, he said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he answers um, their question. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so we see here that Jesus ministers to the crowds. He fed the 5,000 earlier in chapter 6. And when he goes away, crowds follow him. And he continues to teach them in John chapter 6. But he teaches them some hard things, and the crowds end up leaving and walking away from him. But there's no question. When Jesus was in the countryside surrounding the Sea of Galilee, Jesus taught crowds. He taught large crowds. Groups of people, at least 5,000 earlier in John chapter 6. So he taught in the synagogues, taught in the countryside. He taught in the temple. When Jesus made his way down to Jerusalem, he would go to the temple itself and he would teach in the temple. Look over in John chapter 7. You're in John 6 already, so just turn over a page or two. And look in John chapter 7, verse 28. It says... So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. 
You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And so the Bible's clear. Jesus is in the temple teaching people. He taught crowds. And as if this is not enough evidence that Jesus preached to crowds... If you read the Gospel of Matthew carefully, you'll see that the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel in the New Testament canon, is organized around five sermons. It's really interesting to note that. I didn't really see that until I preached through the book of Matthew years ago. It took me, I think, three years to preach through Matthew. And, And as I studied Matthew, just walking through it line by line, verse by verse, I saw how it was organized around five sermons. So let me just give you an example. The first sermon that we see in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that sermon? He starts with the Beatitudes. That's the first sermon. Then over in Matthew 10, it's a sermon on missions, how to go and do missions. He gives to his followers. And then in Matthew 13, we see a sermon on kingdom parables, these different parables that show us what the kingdom is like. Matthew 18, there's a a, a parable on or a sermon on Christian community, how we ought to respond to one another as followers of Christ. And then in Matthew 24 and 25, there's a sermon on the end times. And so the entire gospel is organized around these sermons. Jesus would get up and he would preach to crowds. And so here's the, here's the takeaway. And this is in your notes. Jesus modeled the importance of preaching and teaching to crowds. Jesus modeled the importance of preaching and teaching to crowds. And... I believe the early church was following his example because remember, on the day of Pentecost, in the temple, the Holy Spirit falls on the followers of Christ and there's a crowd gathered in the temple. What does Peter do? He gets up and does what? What's he do? Preaches, right? And then how many get saved on that day? Does anybody remember? 3,000, 5,000 got saved later, but 3,000 got saved on that day, the day of Pentecost. Wow, so there's a crowd there, right? A big crowd. And Peter's preaching the gospel to that crowd. So Jesus modeled for us the importance of preaching and teaching to crowds. When God called me to preach, uh, I remember one of the first books that I I went and got from the the bookstore when I was really getting serious about, you know, following him and preaching the gospel. Uh, I I went to the bookstore and I bought, it just come out at that time, the the big biography of uh, Billy Graham, Just As I Am, autobiography of Billy Graham. And I remember reading through that biography and just reading about the the Crusades in L.A. and New York and and his integrity and the people that got saved. And I just remember being so so overwhelmed by the grace of God that he would use somebody like a a Billy Graham or a a Billy Sunday or or Dwight Moody or these great great preachers through history, um, George Whitfield, that would would come into an area and preach to crowds and God's grace would would be manifest in that and, and and, and thousands would give their life to Jesus. It was just amazing to me to see that and to learn that. And so Jesus showed us that it is appropriate to preach to a gathering of people, to preach to crowds. And, and what, did, what did Paul tell Timothy? In 2 Timothy, he's teaching him how to be a pastor because Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes to him and he says, Here, T- Timothy, I want you to focus on 2 Timothy 4.2, K. Ruxanton Lagon, preaching the word. That's, you need to preach the word. And so in the early church, 
the, the apostolic ministry focused on preaching to a gathering of people. And so Jesus preached to crowds. He was a proclaimer. But remember, that's not all that he was. He was balanced. Not only was he a proclaimer, he was a mentor. And go to the next thing, number two. Jesus invested in a small group of men. So Jesus preached to crowds. There's no really debating that if you just read the Gospels. But not only did Jesus preach to crowds, he also invested in a small group of men. Now, there's never been a preacher like Jesus, right? I mean, who's going to preach better than Jesus? No one, right? Isn't it interesting that Jesus did not entrust the gospel solely to um, preachers to crowds? Because Jesus understood, I'm not always going to be on the earth. I'm physically on the earth. I'm going to ascend back to the Father. And so if I'm relying upon people to preach like me, it's just not going to happen because no one preaches like Jesus, do they? And so Jesus, he wanted his apostles to preach to the gathered crowds, but he also knew that if the gospel was going to spread and people were going to grow in their faith and reach out to others, there would have to be a, a discipleship, a mentoring, a small group strategy. And Jesus invested in a small group of men. Now, when I started seminary, I read a book because it's on a reading list in my evangelism class. And it really, I chose it because it was a thin book. And I had a lot of other stuff to read. I'll just be honest with you. So I chose the thin book. And it, it, that book has made a profound impact on my life. The name of the book is The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Robert Coleman was talking about evangelism in the 60s and 70s before, I'm talking about discipleship in the 60s and 70s before discipleship was cool. Now, a lot of people are talking about it now, but I'm telling you, way back before anyone was talking about it, Robert Coleman was talking about the method that Jesus used to change the world. And he's talking about this mentoring small group strategy. Uh, when I was doing uh, my uh, doctoral work, I had the opportunity to spend uh, with a cohort of, 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 of uh, other students, about six or seven of us. We got to spend uh, a full two days with Robert Coleman. Uh, when he came in, he was in his 80s at that time, and, and he came in and just spent some time with these seven guys just teaching us about discipleship. I think that was awesome. Just to, he was, he's like a, he's the guru. And uh, to just be able to spend that time with Robert Coleman was incredible. And, and so I want to just kind of share with you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to condense the book for you really quickly, okay? If you want to read it, read it. It's a great book, a uh, little thin book, but he's got eight principles there that he takes from the model, the ministry of Jesus Christ. He shows us how Jesus Christ did more than just preach to crowds, how he maintained that balance. The first principle is the principle of selection. Turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. By the way, I will have a Q&A session after we're done, so if you have any questions, just go and just jot them down in your notes, and we'll, uh, we'll talk after we finish up. Mark chapter 3, look what it says, verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And other Gospels tell us he specifically went up on a mountain to pray before he called his Disciples. So Jesus spent time in prayer about who he should call to spend extended time with him, to follow him and be with him every step of the way in his three years of public ministry. After he prayed, he called them to him. And so there's this principle of selection here. Jesus Christ 
sought God's will, the Father's will, to know whom he should spend some time with. And, and God led him to the right people, and he gathered those people. So selection is the first part of uh, discipleship or, or mentoring. We've got we've to be intentional. Listen to me. We've got to be intentional about getting around others for the purpose of growth in our faith. And Jesus was intentional. The second word is the word association. Association. I love Mark 3.14. It says, He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Did you notice that? So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And so this verse is clear. The reason uh, Jesus selected these men is so that they could spend time with him. Because Jesus understood and understands that things are caught and taught. And, and Jesus understood that if they just spent some time with him, following him around, they would learn much from his teaching, from his example, from his correction. And so he chose them so that they might be with him. He wanted these, this small group of men, 12 men, to follow him. Isn't that a command again? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And so everywhere Jesus went, he went up to Capernaum. They went with him. He went over to Caesarea, or up to Caesarea Philippi. They went with him. He went over towards the coast. They went with him. He went down to Jerusalem. They went with him. They were with him every step of the way. Association. And here's the third principle for Master Plan of Evangelism. It's consecration. Consecration. Jesus expected something out of these guys. He, he actually... Um, held them accountable. Look what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says here, his, his disciples, he's in, a con, uh, he's in a conversation with his disciples in this passage. He says, He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man? He gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. And so Jesus here is saying, listen, if you're going to follow me, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to, you've got to crucify yourself. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to put self aside so that you can follow me fully and wholeheartedly. And so he called them to consecration. He called them to a higher level of Christian living. He, he expected that from them. He, he demanded that from them, consecration. Number four, the fourth word is impartation. Impartation. Jesus knew they could not serve him effectively and make a difference in the world in their own power. So look what happens over in John. John chapter 20. Look there with me. Verse 21. This is after Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he knew he would, he would not much longer be upon the earth physically with them. He knew they would need some help. So look what it says in... John 20, 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus wanted to be clear to them, you're going to need the ministry of the Holy Spirit if you're going to live a life that is pleasing to me, if you're going to live a life that honors me, if you're going to live a life that makes a difference, you can't do it by yourself. And so he imparted to them, he, he pointed them to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I would just say to all of us in this room, apart from 
the enabling strength of the Spirit of God in our lives, we can do nothing, right? We need the Holy Spirit if we're going to be faithful disciples. And so, selection, association, consecration, impartation. Here's the next word, demonstration. Demonstration. And by that I mean, or by that Coleman means, that Jesus modeled for them how to make a difference. He modeled for them how to be kingdom citizens. He modeled for them how to advance the kingdom. He modeled what it meant to preach and to teach and to care and to heal and to help and to minister and when to be severe and when to be gentle. I mean, he modeled this for them so that when he was no longer physically upon the earth, he ascended back to the Father. These disciples knew how to change the world because they'd been watching Jesus do it for three years. That's the principle of demonstration. And I have John 4 there. We talked about that last week. But John 4 is when Jesus goes into Samaria. And it said he had to go through Samaria. So he could encounter this woman at the well who was far from God. And, and he ministers to her and points her to truth. And she embraces him as the Messiah. And his disciples saw this. They saw him going out of his way for a Samaritan, a, a, an outcast, a, a sinner who's far from God, and yet he changes his travel route so he can impact this lady's life. Don't you think that made an impact with the disciples? Absolutely. So he demonstrated, he, he lived out before them what it meant to follow the Lord. And here's the next word, delegation. Delegation over in Matthew 10, we won't read there, but if you, if you read Matthew 10 on your own time in Matthew 10, he gives them some assignments. He tells them to go to the different villages to, to preach the kingdom. Uh, if, if, they, if they receive him, you stay with them and preach some more. You teach some more. If they don't, you shake the dust of your feet, go to the next place. But he gave them an assignment. He delegated for them ministry so that they could uh, begin to put into practice what he was teaching them. That's, that's delegation. The next word is the word supervision. Supervision. When they would come back from their delegated responsibilities, Jesus would spend some time helping them to process it and even correcting some of their thinking. Look what it says over in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 72. I'm sorry, verse 17. About the 72. Luke 10, verse 17. He sent 72 folks out to go and preach the gospel. He says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, this is an interesting verse, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. In other words, he's saying, listen, when you are walking in my spirit under my authority, then demons flee and supernatural things happen. But look what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't get caught up in a pursuit for the supernatural. I thought it was interesting. Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So don't lose perspective. The main thing here is the gospel, that you know me, you're going to heaven with you. That's the main thing. Don't get caught up in, in signs and wonders. Rejoice that you're going to heaven when you die. That's the most important thing. And so this is just an example among many of him supervising his disciples, correcting their thinking, helping them to think differently about things. Um, 
You know, he, he, even, he even sternly corrects them sometimes when they're out of line. Last week we saw how Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? Because Satan's, uh, Peter's thinking was, was anti-cross and he needed to correct his thinking. So he was supervising them. He was helping them to learn from, from all that they were encountering. Which leads to the eighth principle from Robert Coleman's The Master Plan of Evangelism. And it's reproduction. He expected them to to invest in others the same way that he invested in them. Over in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go, or as you are going, literally, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. So he said, here's your job. You're supposed to do exactly what I did with you. You're supposed to preach the gospel so people will become followers of me. When they become followers of mine, you gather them, you spend time with them, you teach them the commandments of Christ, you, you baptize them as a symbol that they're followers of Christ now, and you're to teach them all the commandments, even the one to make disciples. So you're to help them to grow to the point where they are reproducing. They're reaching out to others and bringing them in the kingdom. That is the role of every believer. That's reproduction. So Jesus basically says to them, Listen, you know what I've been doing with you for three years? Now you go and do the same thing with another group and teach them to do it so they can reach out to another group and another group and another group. And in a way, that's happened. And it's happened to the point where the gospel came to you, right? The gospel started from this small group of disciples and it eventually made it to you. And so that's the way you change the world, by, by, by gathering a group of people or being with a group of people so that you can challenge each other to reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you say, wait, how can I change the world? Do what Jesus did. Get with a small group of folks. Be intentional about that. Live life together. Uh, challenge each other to, to, be, to be wholly devoted to the Lord. Walk in the power of the Spirit. Model for each other what it means to live the Christian life. Give each other assignments uh, so that they, we can put into practice our faith. Uh, supervise, hold each other accountable. And then get to the point where you are reproducing. You are reaching out to others. Let me, let me just tell you this. Over in 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul is reminding Timothy of this very same strategy. And he says, he says Timothy, uh, I want you to, to take the things that have been entrusted to you. So Paul said, I taught you some stuff. Now, the stuff I taught you, I want you in turn to teach to some other men who will be able to teach others also, now in that one verse, you have four generations, right? Paul taught Timothy. Timothy, teach others, but teach them how to teach others. That's four generations of people who, who are being mentored and discipled in the faith. And let me just tell you, we don't see much of this happening in the body of Christ in America today. We don't see much of this happening. Where it's getting beyond you know, past one generation to a second or a third or a fourth generation. And, and if we're going to change the world, if we're, going to, if we're going to reclaim our country, which needs to be reclaimed, by the way, we've got to get back to this, this strategy. This is what Jesus taught. This is how you change the world. So if you look there in notes, Jesus modeled the importance of life-on-life discipleship. Not just formal teaching in a synagogue or in the temple or on a hillside, but just living life together, 
And there'll be some formality in that. There'll be some, some formal things that, that you, you go over and talk through. But there'll be some informality. There'll be a lot that's just caught by living life together. Jesus modeled the importance of life on life discipleship. Listen to these quotes. The first one's from Robert Coleman. I love this quote. Coleman says, Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Building men and women is not that easy. Listen, if we could just put folks in a classroom setting and someone stand up and lecture, and that's all that was required, then the church would be powerful in America because we do a lot of classroom stuff, don't we? Don't we? We do a lot of class. We figure out the classroom thing, lecterns and chairs and teachers and so if 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 just if just classroom time in and of itself changed the world, then the church would be on fire in America. But there's got to be more than that. Listen to what he says. It requires constant personal attention, much like a father gives to his children. This is something that no organization or class can ever do. Children are not raised by proxy. The example of Jesus would teach us. That it can be done only by persons staying close to those whom they seek to lead. It's a good quote, isn't it? So he's not saying don't preach to masses. He's saying there's got to be more than that. And did you know that Billy Graham even came to the same conclusion? Billy Graham began to look back at some of the results of, of his crusades. And, and, and Billy Graham saw the need for greater follow-up, greater connectivity of local churches so that these, these new believers could be discipled and mentored so that they could grow in their faith. He saw the need to do some things differently. And so, yes, preaching to crowds is important. That's what we are called to do, but it's not enough. It must be accompanied by that, that small group, life-on-life, living life together type thing. And let me just say to you, I think it was easier in the first century to do this than it is now. I really do. I think it was easier to live life on life in the first century than it is now. Because everyone's mobile. Uh, you know, we, we work over here. We go to church over here. We vacation down here. We do recreation over here. You know, back in the first century, you were pretty much in your in your village, and that's pretty much where you stayed. You worked there, you, you shopped there, you, you, did, you went to church there, you went to synagogue. Everything was right there in the village. So people were used to being around each other. They were used to life on life. Uh, I read a book uh, years ago called The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan, and, and he was a pastor of a church in Kidderminster, England. And that church saw a great revival, great awakening, and, and the book is about how you pastor. And he, he was talking about these going to every church member and having these really wonderful soul talks with them and, and this kind of unhurried time. And we began to talk about that one day in, in one of our classes about this wonderful pastoral ministry of Richard Baxter. And, and, and the teacher said, listen, guys, remember the context. In, in, in 1600s in Kidderminster, England, uh, People were, were craftsmen who would apprentice their children. And so you could go to someone's workplace and talk to the whole family. Everybody was just right there, right? And so you could disciple a family uh, all at one time because everyone's just there in the house, uh, you know, learning their trade, uh, practicing their trade. Listen, it's different nowadays. Very little apprenticeship goes on, right? People are mobile and there's all sorts of things happening and, and we travel and we go and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's increasingly more difficult for folks to live life together. I really believe that. It really is. 
because we're all so busy. How many of you, you, you have a busy day uh, at work or with your kids and you're going over here and over there and you, you get to your house and you open the garage door and you're exhausted and you pull in the garage and you get out and you just close the garage door and go, oh, and you're done for the day, right? That's how much many of us live our lives. We run out of the garage in the morning and run about our daily lives and we get back and go back in the garage and close the garage door. And, and we really don't have a lot of time for each other. And, and what Jesus is modeling for us, what Robert Coleman is saying, is we've got to have those, those relationships if we're going to grow. We need that. We need iron sharpens iron. And so I love that quote, that book by Robert Coleman. And then David Platt, I've shared this with you before in this book, Radically, says, making disciples by going, baptizing, teaching people the word of Christ, and then enabling them to do the same thing in other people's lives. This is the plan God has for each of us to impact nations for the glory of Christ. This plan seems so counterintuitive to our way of thinking. In a culture where bigger is always better and flashy is always more effective, Jesus beckons each of us to plainly, humbly, quietly focus our lives on people. And so that's what David Platt This is the plan God has for us to change the world. And so here's my admonition for you. If you're not in a small group, you need to get in one. You need to get in a connect group or some other small group that's based around the Word of God so that you can begin to have those relationships. And Listen, when you get into the, the group, at first, you may be a, a Timothy, and, and you have a bunch of Pauls in the group that are pouring into you and helping you to grow, right? And, and that's good. You need that. The goal, though, is that you grow to the point when you become a Paul to, to, to a Timothy, where you begin to take the things that you've been taught and you begin to take someone under your wing and pour into their lives. And then you teach them to do the same thing. And the gospel flows through relationships. And so it's so important that we follow the model of Jesus, life on life discipleship. And so you have your group over here. Hey, let's get a bunch of people together and preach the gospel to them. Yeah, the people over here, hey, organize, hey, forget all that. That's not authentic, that's not real. Let's just spend time together. Let's hang out in our homes, live life together, have cookouts together, go to each other's ball games together, talk about the Bible. Let's just do that and forget about the whole organized religion thing. So the question is, which is it? The answer is, it needs to be both. It needs to be, yes, you gather, you preach in the, the corporate assembly of believers. Hebrews 10 is very clear. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We, we look for opportunities to, for, for mass evangelism. There will be times when, when there will be a large group of people and you, you preach the gospel. Nothing wrong with that. We should do that. But it needs to be accompanied by, not an anti-religious mindset, but it needs to be accompanied by a small group mindset. That we need to live life together and process these truths. You know, one of the reasons in connect groups that you talk about the sermon that was preached the previous Sunday is because I, I came to the conclusion one day. Frank and I were meeting and talking, and and you know, I spend a I spend a good amount of time each week preparing for my Sunday morning sermon. I mean, a lot of time, and it's just a, a, a large time investment. And it occurred to me that you know what. Our, our people, they have a, a connect group lesson in one passage of scripture, and then they, then they hear the sermon in another passage of scripture, and then they're involved in maybe some other kind of Bible study. And they come on Wednesday night, there's another passage. And, and so they're dealing with four or five different Bible studies a week, 
And they're not thinking about the sermon or, or think about how it applies to their life. And so we said, you know, it just seems like, you know, I put all the energy and focus into that Sunday morning sermon. Perhaps we need to help our people to marinate in it a little bit. So that's when we change our focus to say, okay, what we're going to do is in small groups, we're going to get the sermon back out and, 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 and talk through it and talk about not just the, the points, but talk about how it applies to our lives. Because there's no way on a Sunday morning I have the time to apply every text to everyone in the room. Right? Think about, think about the, the, the people I preach on a Sunday morning. We have unbelievers here. Right? We have brand new believers. We have people that have been walking with God for decades. We have seminary students. We have you know high school students. We have children. So how in the world am I going to... Apply to every one of them. The Holy Spirit does that in the, the preaching moment. But I believe the, the connect groups are our opportunity to get together and say, hey, let's think about what it means, what this passage means for my life. And then we, then, then we, then we challenge each other in that connect group to, to live according to the Word of God. Uh, but that life on life is so important to nail down what we are learning Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And so Jesus preached to crowds. Jesus invested in a small group of men. I'm amazed, aren't you, by the balance of Jesus? Just so balanced. And if we'll just, if we'll just follow him, we'll be balanced and stay away from the extremes. And, and we will be effective in expanding his kingdom.